Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. My name is Clay Newcomb, and I'm the host of the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. I'll also be your host into the world of hunting, the icon of North American wilderness, the bear. We'll talk about tactics, gear, conservation, but we'll also bring you into some of the wildest country on the planet, chasing bear. Thanks for listening to the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. On this episode, I'm actually in the blind hunting on the fourth day of a six-day hunt, and my father-in-law, Steve Schultz, is with me. Steve killed a deer on the first day, and he he, talk, he shares about his decision to shoot that deer and also his regret that he had taken the buck so early in the hunt. And we talk about what he'd learned from this and how to judge big Canadian whitetails. We're the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast, but, man, everybody that's hunting bear, including me, we're hunting all kind of other critters and I, before I was a bear hunter, I was a whitetail hunter. I love whitetail hunting, and we know that most of you do as well. And so we're going to be bringing you some whitetail content throughout this fall. Hey, check out the podcast before this, which was our, our recording of Tom Ainsworth, the outfitter, super neat guy, 70 years old. And then the next podcast, which will be released in a few days, I'll talk about the end of my hunt and what happened with me. Welcome to the Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. It is November the 1st, and we are in Manitoba. We're in not really central Manitoba. We're about a third of the way up in 
western Manitoba about 60 miles, 40 miles from the Saskatchewan border. And as we know it, about 60 miles from where Milo Hansen killed a world record typical whitetail in 1994. <laughs> we are we're sitting in a blind right now. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. We're in what Tom calls the shack. We're in kind of a building, and we're sitting on the edge of a cut soybean field, and we're hunting. So we're going to bring this podcast to you throughout this hunt, and we're going to talk about a few specific things, but we're also going to try to just, we're going to set the context, and we're going to just talk about how we're hunting up here and what we're doing. But it is, first of all, let me just say I've got my father-in-law, Steve Schultz, in the blind with me right now, and he's filming for me. He's also letting me borrow his muzzleloader, and I'm going to talk a little bit about why I'm shooting that muzzleloader. But to begin with, let me set the context for why we're hunting here. This is the fourth day of a six-day hunt, and we have... Steve killed a deer, and he's going to talk about that. James Lawrence, our other buddy that's here, killed a deer on the second day. And James killed his buck on the field that we're sitting in right now. This field is a cut soybean field that was, it. <clears throat> they insured the crop, and they made an insurance claim on these soybeans because of elk. So up here in Manitoba, they've got elk, moose, whitetail, and they've got all kind of critters. The, the elk destroyed the soybeans in this field. I don't know how big this field is, Steve. How big is this field? Oh, this thing probably is somewhere in the neighborhood of, I would say, close to 50 acres. I mean, it's yeah. big. Yeah, it's big. It's a, It's 600 yards to the very edge, the, the furthest place we can see is 600 yards, and then we've got a 330-yard shot one direction. It's big. And so they, because they made an insurance claim on this field, they harvested it at a time when, when the combine came through. The beans shattered, as they say. And so there's a ton of beans on the ground right now in this field. And the deer are hitting it pretty hard. James Lawrence sitting here the other night, and he he didn't see, you know, 40 deer in this field. It's more like he probably saw less than 10, but he saw two mature bucks, and he took one of them. And old James, he says he didn't even look at the other one. <laughs> he just, the one gave him a shot, and he was like, that's the one I want. So he didn't even look at the other one. Amazing. So... No, and it, it, he didn't have much time to make a decision, and this deer popped out, and he was he was like, that's the one I want to take home, and so he shot it. And so there's a mystery buck over here. We don't know how big it is, so we're hoping that it's a, it's a shooter deer. So we are here in the blind, and right now it's half rain, half snow. We're, we've got a weather change that's coming on. And it, there's projected to be between one and three inches of snow tonight. It's been warm. First day we got here, how warm was it, Steve? Do you remember? It was probably uh, probably 40, 41, I think, something yeah. like that. It it may have even been in the high 40s but uh, that first day. Because remember, I hunted in like 
a single layer. I was wearing my first light. Um, yeah, what yeah. What was it? Chama something. Yeah, and your and your swimming trunks were on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I had my swimming trunks on. It was warm for Canada. Uh, so anyway, the 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 weather is changing. It's about thirty three degrees. So Steve, last year, this is our second year to hunt with Tom Ainsworth Grandview Outfitting. A little history on Tom. Tom was a long time bear hunting magazine outfitter. I mean, long time bear hunting outfitter. He sold his bear business to Todd Wolgamuth of Baldy Mountain Outfitters. So now, what used to be Tom's bear hunting outfit is now. Baldy Mountain Outfitters, run by a younger fella, good guy named named Todd Wolgamuth. But Tom kept his deer tags, so Tom's an outfitter. I think Tom has like, I I don't want to say how many tags he has. I don't know for sure. A select number of deer tags that he can sell. And so last year, we came up here, you and I, and now Steve. Well, first of all, Steve, Steve's not just my father-in-law. Steve and I have been, I mean, close for the last, well, since we met each other 15, 18 years ago. And we've hunted all over. We served together on our, um, Steve's the, the senior leader of our church. And so we, we've, anyway, we've got a lot of history together, but we have a rich history in hunting together in Arkansas I mean, when Steve's killed a ton of deer there in northwest Arkansas, we live about, as a crow flies, a mile and a half apart. And so we've done a lot of hunting together. Yep, sure have. And so last year, so give give a little history of your hunting, Steve, that will lead us up to coming to Manitoba last year. Yeah. Well, my, my start of my, my hunting uh, background really was up in upstate New York. I was... At, Moved there when I was a small, my family did when I was a small boy. And uh, went through high school there and one year of college in upstate New York. That's where I really got the itch for white-tailed deer. As a matter of fact, that was the big game animal for New York State. And uh, I had uh, I had nobody in my family that really hunted. My brother hunted a little bit. But I didn't, I was the main hunter of the family. Um, in the springtime when everybody else was playing either tennis or track or baseball i was i was out fishing or and your dad didn't something. hunt my dad wasn't a hunter and uh but i got the bug one time when i shot a groundhog and when i did that it was like i felt like i found something i really enjoyed so growing up there i always had this quest for whitetail didn't know anything at that time i'm uh, 66 years old now at that time back in the 1960s there was two magazines primarily, maybe three, that would deal dealt with anything to do with hunting, outdoor life, of course, and field and stream. And then there was another one called Fur, Fish, and Game. The glory days of print magazines. It was the glory days. There was a company called Herders. Some of the old timers will remember a company named Herders that mm-hmm. you could even buy at that time. You could buy handguns and rifles right directly from them and ship, Just ship them to your oh, door. Ship them right. We're going to start doing that with Bear Hunting Magazine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I recommend you do that. <laughs> And uh, so uh, those were the early years, and that sparked something in me. Although I didn't have a mentor, and I really did, I learned a lot at that time just by trial and error. And I'd have to say most of it was error, 
and a whole mm-hmm. lot of trials to go along with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, then I moved to Florida when I was uh, 21 years old and worked uh, worked in Florida and was there for a number of years, over 20 years. I did, that's where I really started to learn how to, to, to whitetail hunt. But, of course, you're not going to find the whitetail near the size in Florida that you do here in Manitoba yeah. or even in Arkansas, for that matter. And uh, But I did uh, have some guys I hunted with, learned a lot from them, and killed quite a few da- deer down there. And uh, and then, of course, through the years, I just started hunting different places. I traveled a lot, so I think I whitetail hunted in somewhere around 16 or 17 different states. And, uh, and I just would hunt here and there. And when I traveled internationally, I hunted some in Australia, uh, hunted Africa six or seven times. Um, but most of that was with friends. I didn't pay an outfitter. Right. Uh, I knew people over there. I've been to Africa many, many times, uh, yeah. where I didn't hunt. And, uh, but the quest and leading up to this trip in Manitoba, the quest has always been for a larger deer, um, I've shot a lot of 130, 140 class deer, but I've never broken the 150 inch mark. And uh, to me, that's kind of the holy grail to step up to another level of deer. Yeah. And so we uh, we planned to hunt last year, and we hunted here, and uh, it was a it was a great hunt. And whitetail has been, even though you, I mean, Steve's taken lots of African game. He's taken lots of stuff out west, mule deer and antelope, and Audad in Texas. Just lots of different things. Whitetail's your number one target. Yeah, it's still the number one. You've bear hunted with me in Quebec and British Columbia. British Columbia, yeah, and Arkansas. And Arkansas, yeah. yep. Yeah, whitetail to me are still one of the most, particularly the particularly those that make it past the four- to five-year range, are the most crafty, most uh, most skilled animals of evasive, evading human beings that I've seen. So when people in Africa ask me, would you like to come back and shoot something? I say, not really. I mean, my dream would be to continue to. Honed it down to. Yeah, honed it down to tail. one thing, whitetail, and particularly trying to find a large whitetail. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. and I still shoot. I mean, uh, I've already taken one whitetail in Arkansas this year that uh, I was I was very pleased with. But coming up to Manitoba is like stepping stepping the game up to a whole nother level here. Yeah. Uh, animals are just so much, as we know, so much larger, and and the potential for a hundred fifty to two hundred inch deer is 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 increased increased considerably, considering Arkansas. Yep. Yeah. But as we know, the big ones don't grow on trees, and they don't come easy either. So Never easy. So last year I came, and uh, we had a good good trip. I was put on a particular alfalfa field, and I think it was the second morning of the hunt. I heard some bucks rattling in the corner of the field, and probably about 200 yards from me. It was not light enough to really see. Let me stop you right there. You you uh, you describe those horns. So it's so you can imagine. Let, let me even stop you. Let me even go back further than that. Yeah. Coming to Manitoba for both of us, it's like something we never really thought would happen. I mean, my upbringing into the whitetail world was in the 90s. I mean, I was a 12-year-old kid reading North American Whitetail. You know, my dad was a whitetail hunter, and Canada was like the place to go in the world for big whitetails. And and now, 25 years later, really, it's the Midwest, it's Iowa, 
Kansas, northern Missouri. I mean, it, it's kind of shifted to some degree in terms of the where a lot of the really big deer are coming from. Kentucky, Wisconsin. But but still, this is an iconic place to hunt whitetails. So me and you coming up here was like, no. I mean, we were like high-fiving, fist-bumping. A, high, a dream come true. It really was. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I think uh, last year, matter of fact, we were so excited, we drove straight through up here. We drove straight through from northwest Arkansas. Yeah. And so that brings us to what the story you were about to tell about the second day in the blind, sitting over this alfalfa field, and you described to me, it was in the dark, so you're waiting for it to get light, and you hear just like, horns crashing that was different it was different i mean we're north i'm i'm used to having you know hearing bucks rattling in the woods and you're normally talking 100 probably 130 140 inch bucks where they the sound is more of like a clack 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 but i heard these i could hear these deer i couldn't see them yet but i could hear them and it sounded like someone taking two by fours and 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 bumping them together it was more of a deeper resonance in the horn And I realized it was something with some, with something some volume, different. circumference. Yes. Uh, yes. Dud. Dud. It's more like a boing, a boing, <laughs> rather than a clack, clack, clack. Well, that perked my interest until the sun came up, and I was able to, before they walked off the field and went over a hill, I was able to get a glimpse of both of them. And one was a big, uh, on Eastern Count, he was a big eight-pointer. And on the other one, he was a, hey, he this, was, he was a 10 This pointer. is the Eastern Count, a Bear Hunting Magazine podcast. <laughs> We go with Eastern. We go with East. Okay. Yeah, he wasn't a four point. He was he was an eight point. (laughs) He was an eight. The other one was a ten, and the ten had rich dark dark brown chocolate horns. Oh, Mm -hmm. just something you dream about. And the eight was no slouch because he was wider than the ten, but the ten had mass. He had good tine length. uh, He had good beam length on his main beams, and uh, I watched him for a little while before they got out of range. I was using a I was using a muzzle loader, but I didn't. I probably had a maximum of 200 yard range. I felt comfortable with at that time with that particular rifle. So I didn't have a shot early in the morning. And they were they were about 200 yards away. They were about 200 and moving away from me. 180. When I really got a good look at the horns. Yeah. So, anyway, sat there for another hour, and and what happened was the the big ten pointer decided to come back the same way he went on the field. And I saw him coming back, and I ranged and came up with 188 yards and uh, put the crosshairs, got the gun out, the got the gun situated correctly, and I knew where I was going to aim and uh, had the rifle sighted in for 200, as a matter of fact. And so uh, he stopped. He was 888 yards broadside, and I thought, I'm going to fulfill this the dream is, of a lifetime. This, this is it. This is it. This is the moment you've been waiting 40-something years for. And uh, took the safety off, squeezed that trigger, and all I heard was the primer go off. Uh, pop, pshh. That's all I heard. Mm. And, for, for of course, my mind was expecting a boom. Right. I was expecting, you know, some recoil. And for a second there, my mind was, like, frozen as to what in the world happened here. Yeah. You know? And so, <laughs> so I was, uh, to, to say I was disappointed would be an understatement because there was no way to reload the gun. I, I mean, it just wasn't going to happen. It, it pushed your bullet like 
Six or eight inches down the barrel. That's correct. It moved my bullet down you the barrel. Couldn't get the bullet out. I then. couldn't get so the barrel. Couldn't put more powder in. Couldn't put more powder in. I mean, I was stuck. Only to watch that buck saunter off the field, mm. uh, as if I was never there. Let's just take a moment of silence right now on the podcast. Okay, that's good. <laughs> this is like an iconic story between Steve and I. We don't we don't tell it unless reverent ears listen. Yeah, absolutely. Hush on the crowd. I, I I have a feeling we're bringing a few tears to people's <laughs> eyes, don't you? The people are crying right now. Yeah, yeah they probably because they experienced the same thing at one time or another. Yeah. But uh, the issue with the with the issue with the with the rifle was the fact that the night before the weather had turned cold. And I had my rifle loaded. I took the primer out, and I put the rifle in the truck. And apparently there was enough heat in the truck that created moisture inside the chamber. Because the next day, of course, after having the misfire, I tried another primer. It still did not fire. I was able then to realize that the bullet was right at the end of the barrel. I took the breech plug out, pushed everything out, and when I did, the powder came out of my hand and it was literally soaking Just wet. Just mush. Just mush. And uh, I'm not shooting black powder. I'm actually shooting smokeless powder, muzzle loader. And uh, so I'm shooting IMR 4198, and uh, it just came out wet, so I knew what the problem was. So I vowed, bringing us, well, I hunted for four more days last year, um, saw one other buck, but just could not get a shot on him when I was squeezing the trigger. He went behind a pine tree, and he never came back out. And I saw your buck. I was not with you when the gun misfired. The next morning, I had already killed a deer, and so the next morning I went scouting for Steve, sitting in a blind on the other side of the field, and I had the the buck that Steve was shooting at and the eight-point walk within 100 yards of me. And they were they were all he said they were. I mean, you know, 150-inch-plus 10 point just what we were after yeah big huge body big big huge neck on him and of course that added insult to injury i was uh because clay had taken the video camera that morning and he was actually able to record some footage of that buck for me yeah and uh which even it seemed like it was going to be easy after that i mean it's like it's just a matter of time we'll get back on him yeah and and he just he just never he just disappeared I yeah. sat there a number more nights and mornings, and we never did see him reappear. And so last year I went home with an unfilled tag based on that. And that leads us up to this hunt this year. Yeah. And, of course, Clay took a very nice buck with his bow last year here. And uh, and that that spurred me even more. And uh, I decided to come back with Clay again for a second time with high hopes, uh, tremendously high hopes, that I might uh, even see that same buck again, but this year he'd even be bigger. But uh, yeah. anyway, that led us to come in here. Let me talk about what the caliber of deer that we're hunting here. You know, so last year we came, and basically by the end of day two, I had killed a 152-inch buck with my bow, and Steve had shot at, misfired at. What we believe was a 150-inch-plus buck, maybe maybe bigger. We don't know. Those big 10 points with bodies like that. Or he could have been 155, 160, about as easy. So we were like, wow, this is, this is the place 
this place has got some big deer. And, you know, Tom, Tom Ainsworth, what a guy. Tom's 70 years old, and he, he has thousands of acres. That's not an exaggeration that he can hunt. Much of it he owns. Big cropland. I, I described on the podcast, the last podcast that we did, I mean, this is, this is big ag country. I mean, this is uh, where they're growing canola, soybeans, uh, oats, and wheat, and flax. And, the, and the, the deer eat almost all of it. Lots of alfalfa, too. So it's kind of, it's, I would say it's similar to Iowa, except for the trees are different. There's a lot of spruce and a lot of poplar. And other than that, I mean, it would be similar to like hunting somewhere like Iowa, except I'm not sure that these there's not more agriculture here than even in the flat country of Iowa. I don't know, just huge. I mean, whole sections, you know, 640 acre sections that basically don't have trees in them. You know, just along yeah, the not a single tree along the creeks, yeah. maybe some, but I mean, big ag. And so up here, the deer densities are not extremely high. That being said, you know, you can hunt in the evening and see two or three deer. Or, you know, James has been looking out behind Tom's house in his alfalfa field and seeing 30 deer a night. So you're seeing deer just about every time you sit, for sure. But so we, last year, like we were both going to come home with 150-inch deer, and that was just phenomenal. The weather was great last year, too, though. High temperature rarely got over 32 I mean, it was it stayed cold the whole time. The deer were really keyed in on the alfalfa, and they just don't seem to be this year. Yeah. And I'm bow hunting, and the reason that for me to successfully bow hunt this property, at least with the knowledge that I have right now, I really needed those. I needed mature bucks to be keying in on two alfalfa fields because I felt like I could set up bow stands to catch these deer coming off. There just aren't mature deer right now on those alfalfa fields. So my bow hunting plans were kind of thrown off. And so we're going to do two things. I'm going to tell you how I got to where I'm at, and then we're going to go back, and I'm going to – Steve's going to talk about his hunt this year. The – the so we – so so right now the, the deer weren't keying in on the alfalfa too much, and um, – um, well, shucks. I'm trying to decide where to go from here. Um, cut. Cut. <laughs> now, we're also looking for deer. Steve and I are bobbing our heads around, looking through these windows, looking for deer. The windows are fogging up just a little bit in here. But, uh, but so anyway, we come into this hunt, and you never know really what to expect. It warmer temperatures, and then... We've struggled this year to see the big deer. I mean, we kind of thought, like, maybe just it was going to be pretty easy to get on 150-inch type deer. But this year, we've just not seen them. And, okay, this is where I was going to go. The rut is different here. It's November the 1st. Back home is, like, prime time rut in Arkansas. I mean, right now, if I could pick a day to hunt, man, I'd... November 1st through the 7th, holy cow, deer responding to calls, bucks are cruising. I mean, it's showtime. Right now, the bucks are still grouped up. They're not responding to calls. It's, it's kind of like the rut is dead. 
in these northern latitudes, it seems like the the rut is so compressed because fawn survival has to be so precisely timed. Well, the timing of breeding has to be so precisely timed for good fawn survival that the rut is just compressed. Now, granted, it must be crazy about 10 days from now. Yeah, even a week from now. I wish we were here ten days from now. Yeah, for sure. No. Yeah, yeah. But we're not. We're not seeing the bucks cruise by themselves too much. They're not up during the day running around. They're just eating. Yeah, just, just eating. And and if they're full, they're not. They're not getting. They're just staying on their beds. Yeah, so we we just haven't seen them like we did. So we last think year. the big deer are here. We're just not seeing them. I mean, we're just seeing younger deer yeah. really. But uh, we know the big ones are here and. Uh, it's just one of those years we're probably a week probably a week off of probably prime time here that we'd be able to make it. Yeah. But uh so we're making the best we can out of out of what we've been the hand we've been dealt. And uh I was very fortunate on the on the uh first morning that I hunted. I, we hunted here, got here in, in the afternoon uh, early afternoon, uh got on stand the first night, didn't see too much, nobody did. I was out the next morning, and uh, let me set the let me set the stage for this. Tom, Tom puts a few trail cameras up for us here, but also he's driving these roads around these fields and these woodlots and uh, this area, and he has a pretty good idea, you know, pretty good idea of what's on the what's on some areas of his land. So uh, he normally uh, cues us in uh, every time that we come. Yeah, and. Uh, this particular time, he said uh, the particular field he was going to put me on was the same field uh, that I hunted last year where I had the misfire. And I was kind of looking forward to, quite honestly, going back to that same field and having a little bit of revenge. Mm-hmm. Now, let I'm me open the same buck would be there. Uh, I was hoping, and he would be bigger. Now, let me say this, that in the between last year and this year, one of the things I decided to do because of the misfire was I decided to have my Savage bolt-action muzzleloader, uh, which Savage no longer makes, I decided to have it rebarreled for a little bit longer range and uh, to have it restocked. I wanted to be able to reach out to 350, 400 yards if I wanted to with a muzzleloader. And uh, so I came prepared this year. You were prepared, man. I I, uh, spent... I scraped and saved and put the money together and sent the rifle away and uh, sent it up to a a guy named Luke um, and uh, Arrowhead Sporting Goods up in Iowa. He builds a long-range muzzle loader, does an excellent job on it with a muzzle brake. And so I came I came for revenge. So I'm sitting in the same spot, um, and that's when this year I, I didn't see a deer come out and go over the hill this time. He just came over the hill. And he was walking almost the identical path that the deer had walked here before. Now, the thing about these deer, Clay, as you know, first of all, Tom had already told us that there was a bus driver with a bus route saying that they had been seeing a a big big buck. Big buck. Right there. Right there. And um, so it sounded like, well, he's maybe pretty patterned. uh, As we know, the school bus is going every morning, five days a week. So over the hill comes this buck, and I probably 15 minutes after legal shooting light, I can make out horns. I could see him pretty good, and uh, he's coming, and he's walking steady. So I immediately get the binoculars on him, 
And I determined, well, he looks like a 5x5 five five from what I could tell. But I can only see one side of him because he's at the, he's on my far left-hand side and he's walking facing kind of uh, facing to my further to my left, walking like from the front of me to the back of me. Yeah. And so I, uh, so I was looking at him and, and uh, what happened was when he finally got where I could see him well enough that I thought, well, he could be a shooter. Uh, it was a. I had about four seconds to make the decision because he. I couldn't get him to stop, and uh, I'm sure a lot of guys have had that happen where you, you know, and they just keep walking, and the that's again the bucks here are not in rut, so he really wasn't interested in a doe bleat, or uh, I don't anything, so I tried a couple times. He kept walking. And I realize I'm about to run out of real estate because he's about to walk off the field. And now here's the here's the challenge. I was trying to make a split second decision on what appeared to be a five by five. And we had been talking all week about how these deer their racks look smaller because they're so big, so big, so big. And I was, I mean, the whole trip up here, we were talking about judging deer with James and. And, you know, last year, the the 150-inch buck that I killed, when I first saw him, I was kind of unimpressed with him. I thought he was a 135-inch deer. And so, but he turned out to be 150. So it's like, hey, these these bodies make the horns look small. So that's in your mind. We've been talking about that for a year. Yeah. So, so, you, so see a four, you see a five-point side. The buck's in the same spot as the one last year. Everything's the same. Everything's the same. He's <laughs> You've been dreaming dark. about sitting in that blind <laughs> for for twelve months. I've been dreaming about sitting in that blind and that finally gun hanging out the window. Yeah, and here we go. And I, I looked at him and I thought, well, I thought to myself, okay, I know he's not a one seventy, but I think maybe this buck could do one fifty. And I thought I'd be satisfied with that. I'm not going to try to get too too piggish here, and uh, and uh, so I I went ahead and. I had two seconds to make that decision. I'm thinking in my mind, one of the things that Tom's wife said the night mm-hmm. before is don't yeah. shoot any, you know, don't pass up anything on the first day. You would shoot the last day. And, you know, they that's that's been said a lot. And I thought, well, you know, if this is the last day, I definitely would shoot this deer. So I went ahead and shot and uh, and uh, I heard the bullet. I even saw the bullet hit him. He was He was 200 yards away. And uh, broadside, but walking slowly, shot. And then, of course, uh, later when we went to recover him, he only went about 20, 25 yards. And we went to recover him. And uh, the infamous ground shrinkage uh, took over, which is something I've been familiar with for many years. (laughs) And you're always hoping or imagining you're something as bigger than what you actually think it is. Ground swell. (laughs) We were... (laughs) We were hoping for a ground swell. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but all we got was ground shrinkage. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but at the same time, of course, it's enjoyable being up here. And, I mean, and you, you know, you're going to, this is hunting. Nothing is an exact science. Animals will always behave differently than you think they will. You're dealing with a whole set of factors that are uncontrollable. And for me, this trip, it was like I was determined I was going to wait until the right buck. But being in that same location with a five-pointer, dark horned, it just looked like it was a replay of the year before. 
until I actually found the deer. And really, I realized he was a five by four. Yeah. Uh, you know, he wasn't a five by five. I couldn't see the other side real well. Actually, he's a, if you were to take that beer, that, that set of that rack, yeah. put some steroids on it and let it swell up a little bit. It'd be a very nice rack. <laughs> yeah. He had all, he had all the stuff, didn't he? He just was a, just a younger deer, you know? I'm thinking about, but they're big though. Yeah. I mean, even this deer, yeah. had, we weighed James Lawrence's deer and it weighed 250 pounds. And I mean, your deer was just a notch smaller than that in body size. So this was a, probably a 225 pound deer. Yeah, he's a big, big body deer for sure. Yeah. And that's another thing that kind of messed me up is I'm thinking, well, big deer, this, the racks look a little smaller. Yeah. So, so, you know, what I hated for you is that it happened on the first day. You know, yeah, that's yeah. Because Steve's been just hanging out at camp while we're hunting, and I know how much he's been looking forward to this hunt. So that's the part that kind of stinks, is that uh, he he filled his tag early, and so he didn't didn't just hadn't got to hunt. He's hunting with me today, but yeah, that's that's why they call it hunting, not shooting. Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm glad to be here. So the quest continues, though. The quest will continue. The only good thing about this is you don't get to quit now. Yeah. Everybody, everybody's always like, if I true. killed a deer like that, I'd quit. <laughs> Man, if I killed a deer like that, quote air quotes unquote, I think it would just make you want to go more. I probably would me too, but you know, <laughs> you always you always think you know get the big one and you're done. Particularly yeah. the older in life you get, you're like you know how many more years can I keep doing this? I've done it for so many years, but yeah. Ah, well, you enjoy doing it. So I, I think even if you shot a big one, it's something you really thoroughly enjoy. You just keep doing it. But well, it, it's just fun to be here. I mean, for where we're at in Arkansas, coming up here is like hunting a different planet. Yeah. Flat yeah. country, farm country. I mean, we're in the Ozark Mountains. We got we can't see more than 50 yards in any direction unless we're sitting on the edge of a field, a yeah. man-made field. I mean, it's thick, it's mountainous, it's rugged. Mm-hmm. You know, we do have some good deer in northwest Arkansas, and the occasional guy will kill a 170-inch deer, in a, you know, one in a lifetime if he's lucky. I mean, there are good deer where we, we are, right. but it's not common. It's I not mean, common. You know, and not the, common at all. Average, average, a good shooter buck that somebody would mount where we're from is 120 inches. Most guys kill a 120-inch buck, they're like, Going to the taxidermist. Yep. Truthfully, that average guy. Yeah, so it's a it's a taxidermist paradise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a, that's that's a funny funny you say that. You remember there was a guy there in Winslow that had a taxidermist shop, did real good, moved to Iowa. Yeah, and yeah. He said they don't mount deer like we do in Arkansas. <laughs> Everybody in Arkansas mounts all these little deer that they kill all the time. He said in Iowa, man, they don't mount one unless it's 160 inches. So I think he struggled a little bit. He struggled bit a little bit. <laughs> He's got to come back to Arkansas to get little ones, take them back to Iowa to mount them, and then comes back down here. So, yeah, yeah, we're a taxidermist paradise. There's a taxidermist on every corner. Man, I hope it stays that way. That's good. That's good. Now, so what i mean what would you what did you what did you learn what would you do different how will what will you, well, what do you think it's always a hard call but i think probably the biggest thing was i should have passed on the buck because it was the first first full day of hunting right the first morning and and as tempting as that was i should have just i should have passed on it 
And just uh, the decision window was too short. The decision window was too short. The buck never turned and faced me. I never got a good. I, I was never able to really fully to really, see you, you where were, he You were like. able to give him about a 40% assessment. That's when you really right. needed about an 80% assessment. Yeah, you know because I mean? he's about. Like uh, if the buffer bar needed to get to 80 before you knew for sure what you're shooting at. Absolutely. You know, and they always say up here, well, you'll know the big ones. You know, they all stand out. And that's true, but I was tough. I was willing to just break the 150 mark is what I was shooting for. I thought that would be a good start. Let's go for that. I'm not going to try to try to go for a 160 or 170. So that was probably the biggest takeaway. It's just like, wait a minute, if I had to do it again, you know, would I I would have I would have passed for sure. The second thing was I would have said, wait a minute, any deer that doesn't up here doesn't give me an opportunity. Unless it really stands out as a very, very exceptional good deer, uh, don't rush to judgment. You know, don't yeah. give him the opportunity to stand in front of you, or at least walk a long enough way that you can get a good look at both sides of the rack. And uh, and that's what, but that's what the deer have been doing this year here uh, with James, with you, uh, with me. Uh, the deer just aren't coming out and just feeding. They seem to be just when they are, they're moving. Yeah, but they're not moving a lot. But yeah. every time we've seen them, they seem to be on a steady, yeah. a steady journey somewhere. Yeah. So, so that was the big takeaway from this year, and it shows you I don't care how old you get and how many years you've hunted and how how many times you've pulled a trigger, you're always going to learn something new every time you go. Yeah. Well, we're all subject to making error and judgment at any time, and the in in coming to a totally new place with different body size animals. It really is. It really is tricky. But, hey, at least you got the chance to make that mistake. Yeah. How many whitetail hunters have dreamed about coming to Manitoba, Canada? That's twice? true. Oh, yeah. And now you've had some kind of poor, poor, I don't want, luck's the wrong word, but, you know, misfire. And then, and I mean, you killed a nice deer. Yeah. But for where we're at, it really wasn't what you came for. Not what and I came I mean, for. I mean, we know but, that. Yeah. It but, wasn't what you came for. And so that's what kind of stinks about it. But. Hopefully we'll get to come back. There you go. Well, as they say, there's three parts to a hunt. You know, there's the pre-hunt where you dream about it for 11 months. Which we did. Yeah. We probably, like, at least bi-weekly for the last 12 months have talked about this hunt. Then there's the actual hunt time, and that's, what, anywhere from two to three, maybe five-day hunt, six-day hunt, usually maximum. Yeah. So that's enjoyable. But then, there's obviously, there's the the post-hunt. The post-hunt. You know, and... You do one of two things in the post-hunt. You either celebrate the great success and uh, chance that you had, or if you don't do too well, you celebrate the fact that you had another learning curve in your life. Yeah. Yeah. And what I've seen you do all these years is when something goes wrong or you want to see something different, you go, you take action just like last year. I mean, man, you didn't wait a week before you were sending that muzzle loader off to be redone and ready to roll i mean so yeah you didn't just say i had a faulty muzzleloader you you took action to, to amend the situation yep yep yeah i and uh my thing was well i knew i knew the how big these fields were and i realized uh and boy this one is big steve yep i'm using steve's muzzleloader tonight uh He's let me borrow it, and I, I may have already said this, but I've 
I pretty much have decided that a bow hunt for this year is going to be really low odds. Last year, it was good odds for a bow kill buck, and I and I did it. Really wanted to do it again this year, but I just I just don't know with the feeding patterns these deer are on. And that's the good thing about coming during the muzzleloader season and bow hunting is that I can make an adjustment. And uh, so that's what I'm doing. So I'm we're we're looking. Wow, we can see 600 yards across this field. We've yet to see a deer. This whole podcast, we're talking in loud voices, normal voices, because we're sitting in a we're sitting in a shooting blind, and it's raining. The snow kind of quit. Yeah, the snow quit. It's all rain. It's just rain, and uh, so there's a little bit of noise with the rain. And these deer, when they come out, are going to be long ways from us. On this hunt, the evening came to a close. We saw seven or eight deer, never saw a shooter. Stay tuned for the next podcast where I talk about my successful hunt from that very blind. Well, not the blind. I got out of the blind from that very field two days later. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. 